Hello, welcome to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast. It's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library, and my name is Jeff Milo. It's the end of the year, and we thought we would look back on some of the interviews that we conducted with some best-selling authors. Included in today's episode, we'll be looking back at conversations that we had with C.J. Box, Lucy Clark, J. Ryan Straddle, Grady Hendricks, Stephen Rowley, and Riley Sager. We'll start off with C.J. Box, New York Times bestselling author of 30 novels, including perhaps best known for the Joe Pickett series, which are thrillers set in Wyoming featuring a dogged, sometimes literally dogged, game warden. C.J. Box is a Wyoming native himself. He's won several awards for his captivating fiction, and he, before becoming a best-selling author, worked as a ranch hand, surveyor, fishing guide, and worked at a small-town newspaper as a reporter and editor. The Joe Pickett series is, of course, very popular. It's now been adapted into a television series, and the very latest book was called Stormwatch, in which C.J. Box's protagonist, Wyoming game warden Joe Pickett investigates a mysterious death at a secret remote high-tech facility. Here's a bit of our chat with CJ Box. Um, a little bit, yeah. Since the very beginning, um, I never, I, well, once, you know, I, know, I was never planning a series. I was never, I never sat down and thought, you know, the world's waiting for a Wyoming game warden series <laughs> out there. Um, it just happened. The publisher wanted more books based on the first one open season, and it's developed that way. But since the very first one, I did want a protagonist who was not, who was almost, um, uh, you know, anti-crime uh, novel protagonist in that he's he's a state employee. He's in, devoted to his family, devoted to his job. Um, loves being outside, feels guilty that he can't make enough money to really take care of his family the way he should, um, and has everyday problems, money problems, he makes mistakes. Um, I think that he's understandable for a lot of readers, but the dirty little secret is I think it make it, it increases the tension when you know that Joe is not just going to beat everybody up or outshoot anybody. Um, his, his main attribute is but basically his doggedness, mm-hmm. not his brilliance or um, his violence. Right. Something about Joe again, though, is that he, you know, we're talking about how he's kind of humble, but he's also not a pushover. And there are uh, more than a few characters in here who are really pushing against him and block him out. And possibly uh, they possibly really don't really don't like him <laughs> at all. And yes. uh, but one of my favorite things about reading these books, and I, I'm really curious to hear what your favorite thing is is the um the the, the team that joe kind of has he has his family he has his friends he has like people he can really confide in people who can maybe advise him on things before he makes any brash decisions those are some of my favorite parts of the books because there's a lot of tension joe gets into all these um confrontations but he has that uh team and his family and his friends to kind of like bounce ideas off of so that's been my favorite thing as you've written joe has that been one of your favorite things or is it something else entirely? No, I, um, this book is a little different um, from previous ones. All those characters are always there. The family, right. Nate Romanowski, all those. This is the first time they've all come together as a team. And that's because of the circumstances that are going on in the book. And that's something I'm particularly proud of with this one and happy with that was very 
hard to do was um, to basically build this team and then have an ending that I thought of as kind of like a godfather ending mm-hmm. where everybody's involved, every thread gets resolved, every all, every problem gets solved all at once. Right. Um, and it was fun to write and kind of exhilarating because I've always wanted to try to do that. I know, but how rewarding though, you've been able to build these characters. Like you, it's one thing to say that I wasn't, I wasn't sure it was going to be a series or I didn't intend to be a series, but isn't that kind of, I think the word you used was exhilarating to have a set up these characters so that you, now you can do these kinds of things. It did. It felt like the ending of a suspenseful action movie as any, as any of your novels should. (laughs) Well, thank you. Um, The more characters, the harder in some ways because there's just so many balls in the air right but uh, at the same time if if uh i think i've gotten to know the characters i know their characteristics readers certainly do they know kind of what to expect or what could happen Mm -hmm. based on like nate romanowski's propensity for violence and um put that all into a mix and then i think it's it's a lot of fun that was our chat with cj box we'll move on to another conversation that we had this time with author lucy clark who specializes in what's known as destination thrillers those titles include the castaways one of the girls and most recently the hike some of her works including the title known as the blue has been released as a major international show for paramount plus the castaways is currently being filmed on location due to be adapted as a series again for paramount plus one of the Girls, meanwhile, was a book that we here at the Ferndale Library featured in one of our book clubs and spurred a pretty rousing conversation amongst our patrons. Clark's latest was The Hike, and in that story, four friends are leaving behind their everyday lives and heading out into the beautiful Norwegian wild, where there's nothing between them and the mountain peak but forest, sea, and sharp blue sky, but there's a darker side to the wilderness, as the cast of characters discover. So we spoke with Clark about her specialty again, which is destination thrillers. Yeah, of course. Um, So the hike is set on a trail in Norway and I always start my novels with place. So that's kind of the thing that comes first rather than a plot hook. Um, it's, It's place, it's what world do I want to inhabit and where am I sort of passionate about? So I knew I wanted to do a book about hiking um, or have that as a mechanic that sort of leads the structure through the story. And I really wanted to travel to Norway because it's just such true remote wilderness and then it has some of the best hiking trails in the world. So I um, decided to set it there and then went off on a research trip um, with my backpack and my hiking boots and tent and stove and things uh, and was joined by my husband and we went hiking for um we did a sort of five day night trail uh just the made up one the two of us and um yeah we didn't see another hiker for the entire time it was absolutely crazy um <laughs> it really felt so remote and it very much brought the landscape to life there's kind of emotions to life that you might have when you are uh yeah out in the wilderness um and so it really helped me then kind of inform my characters and just kind of what i wanted to then make the novel about really sure sure maybe the word maybe the word eerie is appropriate too when it is that remote right is that there's just a kind of something a little 
scary is not the right word, but you know, we're, we're so used to the hustle and the bustle and the noise and the city and what have you and cars and people everywhere. It's kind of, it's kind of weird on our modern, modern minds to get out there, or at least speaking from my personal experience, but you no, capture I, that. I completely agree. It definitely felt eerie to see the, um, mobile phone coverage just kind of disappearing bar by bar as, right. as we walked. <laughs> And, um, you know, you go through all those things of like, well, what if something happens? What would I do? Yeah, it was eerie. That's exactly the right word. Right. And I, I have to presume as a writer, your brain is constantly doing that. Like, hmm, what? But what if? Hmm. And did you did you have those thoughts obviously occur while you were out there Absolutely. on the trail? Absolutely. I did all the time about very small things. Um, in Norway, they have these uh, DNT cabins, they're called, that are um, very small, sort of beautiful wooden buildings in the middle of nowhere, very mm -hmm. remote places. Mm -hmm. And they are, um, it's a government run operation and they're left unlocked for hikers or in snowy season for kind of snowshoers or whoever to come by and have a place of refuge. Um, and we planned to kind of hike to some of these DNT cabins that we'd seen on a map, um, you know, like a kind of a hiking map. Um, and we just felt like, you know, you're walking in the middle of nowhere in a mountain plateau thinking, is there really going to be a cabin out here? You know, is this, is this true? So we bought our own tent just in case we got kind of caught out mm -hmm. um then when you get you know we found our first cabin one one evening just as the light was starting to fade and you're kind of on the threshold thinking but what if it's locked mm -hmm. and then you kind of push the door and think okay amazing it's open and then the next thought is like who's gonna be inside we're in the <laughs> middle of nowhere and once you get in you know we found the cabins empty but in i think height of summer you might find them with other people in sure um but then you know once night falls and you've lit the fire and you're kind of getting in your sleeping bag you then start thinking who's going to turn up mm -hmm. um so there was a lot of what if moments and questions and i think all of that was really fun for exploring in the novel and that was our chat with Lucy Clark. We're going to switch genres slightly. We're going to stay in the thriller realm, but we're going to get a bit more into horror with our latest, with our next author, Riley Sager, New York Times bestselling author of Survive the Night, Final Girls, The House Across the Lake, and his most recent, The Only One Left. This is a bit of a throwback to gothic horror novels. It's about Lenora Hope, who supposedly hung her sister, the Hope family murders, have shocked the main coast one bloody night way back in 1929. While most people assume that the then 17-year-old Lenora was responsible, the police were never able to prove it. Other than her denial after the killings, she has never spoken publicly about that night, nor has she set foot outside of Hope's End, the cliffside mansion where the massacre occurred. But the book flashes forward to 1983, and home health aide Kit arrives at the decaying Hope's End to care for Lenora after her previous nurse fled in the middle of the night. In her 70s and confined to a wheelchair, Lenora was rendered mute by a series of strokes and can only communicate with Kit by tapping out sentences on an old typewriter, and one night, Lenora uses it to make a tantalizing offer to Kit to tell her everything about what happened in 1929. Here's our chat with Riley Sager about the only one left. Yeah, um, Kit has like like most of my protagonists. Kit has gone through some things, sure. And I always find that fascinating because I love 
damaged characters because in some way we're all damaged. Like, you know, the, the pandemic messed us up so much in ways that we still are discovering. Like it threw everyone for loop. And so I wanted to put her in this situation that is so foreign to her, but also she can relate to because first and foremost, she is a caregiver. Mm-hmm. Like she stresses this. I care. And she does have to do everything for this woman who might be a murderess. And so she has to feed her. She has to bathe her. She has to do everything. And there's this great scene where Kit is, you know, holding Lenora's hand just to sort of like checking the reflexes and realizes, oh, she might have killed her family with this hand. And then she just drops it instinctively. And then she feels guilty about dropping it. And it's this whole mess of emotions that she's feeling where she needs to care for she needs to keep this woman alive mm-hmm. yet she's also a bit frightened of her mm-hmm. yet she also kind of likes her and she sees herself in Lenora in many many ways and some might be a little bit spoilerish but like sure. she she looks at Lenora and she kind of sees a reflection of herself Mm-hmm. And th- that to me was very fascinating to have this caregiver going through this gamut of emotions while at the same time navigating a mansion that is literally tilted <laughs> and falling, you know, leaning toward the sea, and that she's literally unbalanced, mm-hmm. like both literally and figuratively. And I thought that the the house was a great way to show her mental state. A hundred percent. And I don't, I don't know how many interviewers you're going to come across who are, who's going to say this, but over the last three years, I've become a caregiver. And so I can, I can say you got it. Like this whole vibe of, uh, kind of just an indiscriminate care. Uh, this all like this whole, like you are being called upon kind of thing or the empathy that comes into it. Um, whether you have, maybe it's your parents or not, whether you have baggage with the person or not, you just, it's literally just like holding a frail human body in your hands because you want to help them stay alive. And you caught that in kit perfectly. Oh, just thank like, you so much. A hundred percent. Um, so there's that, but I, I'm not taking care of a potential murderer though <laughs> <laughs> that <laughs> I know of are, I think, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah so uh yeah talk about and talk about just um developing the the mystery and um because i i almost wonder like do do you as an author do you get kind of a cork board out do you have to keep these wires from getting crossed in your own head as you're developing it um sometimes i do have to resort to and if you i'm in my office where i write right now and if you could see like the floor over there uh-huh you would see several dozen index cards. I knew it. Arranged on the floor where I'm trying to figure out the plot of my next book. And so (laughs) like with the only one left, I did have to do a similar thing where it just, there were so many threads to keep track of Mm -hmm. that I eventually needed to just be like, okay, I'm I'm doing the index card on the floor thing and just rearranging and trying to figure it out. Because it is a very tricky balance. Mm -hmm. There's a lot going on in this book. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of it is beneath the surface like Lenora is this very silent and still being 
And you know what they say about still waters. They right. run deep. And there's a lot going on in Lenora's head. Right. And just there's a lot going on in the house in general. Like everyone there has some kind of secret. Mm-hmm. Everyone there has some kind of ulterior motive. And Kit has to kind of sift through it all and talk to them all and I don't know if I trust him I don't know if I believe him I trust him now and then later she does it and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. and it was very difficult as a writer to just keep it all on track and keep it moving and keep it in a way that the reader won't get utterly lost sure Riley Sager, author of The Only One Left. Now we're going to listen back to a bit of our chat with Stephen Rowley, New York Times bestselling author of Lily and the Octopus, as well as The Gunkle and The Editor. The Gunkle was a favorite here amongst our staff. We also featured it on one of our book club discussions. That book, The Gunkle, also went on to win the Thurber Prize for American Humor. And Stephen Rowley specializes in books that can make you cry as much as they make you chuckle. The latest, The Celebrants, has been heralded as a big chill for our times. It's about five college friends who haven't seen each other in five years, but have kind of an interesting ceremony whenever they reunite. They have been getting together every so often to perform mock eulogies for one another. They'll all get into a room, they'll act and uh, imagine as though one of them have just died, and they will deliver eulogies for each other, for that one person who whose turn it is, really, to have a quote-unquote funeral. But what happens when one of these five friends, as they enter into their 50s, is actually now terminally ill? This reunion is going to be different. The Celebrants is a deeply honest tribute to the growing pains of selfhood and the people who keep us going, coupled with Rowley's signature humor and heart. It's a moving tale about the false invincibility of youth and the beautiful ways in which friendship helps us celebrate our lives, even amid the deepest challenges of living. That's right. Right. And I think that's something you can do with longstanding friends, right? You don't always have to be on your best behavior. You don't always (laughs) have to be the best version of yourself. You can let them see you be weak. You can let them see you be messy and they still have to love you um, afterwards. And there there is something about these lifelong friendships that I think are so essential. You know, people who knew you before, you know, when you had youthful dreams and the different elements of your life were not locked into place and, and know you now you know once you know it's sort of more settled what your what your career is what your life is who you ended up with um you know in your personal life and they love both versions of you and it's sometimes these long-standing friends that can help bridge the difference between those two versions of yourself if they're not exactly uh aligned and so um, I, I just think these, you know, and it doesn't have to be college friends. For some people, it may be siblings, it may be cousins, it may be, you know, grade school friends or, or who knows. But, you know, having people in your life for, for long stretches of time, I just think is so, you know, it's so interesting. and something that was a lot of fun to write about. And I, and I'm, I say death, but that's only because the, the crux of this book is about how these friends have a pact in which they get together and they're they're going to enact their own eulogies in a way. And I think we all think about that. What will people say about me when I'm gone? But more importantly, what this book does is, what am I going to say about my best friend when they're gone? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and epiphanies arise. Um, again, the dialogue allows for the comedy, but I think epiphanies arise. And I think there's something extremely heartfelt, I think, in your afterward where you're like, maybe don't wait to say these things to your friends. That's what the book really became about for me. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of conversation among artists and writers, particularly about how to address the past few years that we've been through. Yeah. Um, some people have tackled it head on. One of my favorite writers is Elizabeth Strout. Um, and, uh, you know, she wrote a book, Lucy by the Sea, last year that is almost a, a, a kind of a TikTok, a, a minute by minute retelling of 2020, which wow. to me was like a horror story. You know? <laughs> like, I'm, not, I'm not ready to revisit that quite yet. Um, but this is, I think, a very much a reaction um, to what we've been through because, you know, so many of us are grieving something. We may not have lost a person, although many, many people have been lost, but we certainly um, have lost time, you know, and we've lost togetherness. And so the idea uh, of crafting a story around telling the people in your lives what they mean to you now yeah. while they're still here. Um, to to hear that and, and hopefully receive those words with an open heart, um, I think is very much a reaction to um, the past few years and and what we've what we've been through. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's really relatable, uh, and I think this goes into story. Um, and a word I felt compelled to bring up is this. Help me with this, Stephen. Mm-hmm. It's not. We have things to deal with. I didn't want to use the word baggage, but you know, yeah, we have yeah. emotional baggage. Yeah. I think this book is, I use the word cathartic, but there's something really healthy going on here about <laughs> working through these things, um, which I think was pulled off again in, in the Gunkle too, but uh, also here as well. Yeah, I'm kind of writing comedies about grief. I don't know. I don't know why I chose to do this. But it exactly. it hurts so but good. I'm sensing a theme. I'm sensing a theme. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Can you just uh, talk about uh, uh, again? If you were having a chance to do an afterword here before I let you go, like what do you what do you hope people take away from this book? In an ideal yeah, scenario. Absolutely. You know, I was struck earlier this year. I was incredibly fortunate, and I, I won the the. Um, Thurber Prize for American Humor um, for the Gunkle. And I wanted to get on stage and be like, ha ha, surprise. I, it's actually a book about grief, right. um, <laughs> you know, and you're giving me this this humor award. But, you know, I do think, you know, laughing is the way through. And as I say, you know, not holding off, not, um, you know, I, I, I guess I guess if I've changed in the past few years, I've become a little bit of a mush. Mm-hmm. Um, so people, you know, I will tell people, uh, you know, and my friends are like, you know, I'll approach them. I'm like, I love you. And they're like, we know, we know, we know, <laughs> back off. Um, but, um, you know, I would love that uh, for for everyone, the, the ability to um, both have um, people in their lives that are important to them and and to be able to say i will say you know as as an openly gay writer too the idea of found family um is so important in queer literature um and you know definitely a recurring theme and i look you know when i came out 30 years ago the literature that i that was available to me which reflected the time right it was a very honest about the time but was about sort of lives lived in the shadows of lonely existences and often lives cut short and um, the opposite has been true. I've been fortunate to be, you know, to be alive in a moment where I, my life has been filled with community and um, and joy and celebration. Mm-hmm. And I, so yeah. I want, you know, I want people to to embrace that. That yeah. uh, um, they're they're, you know, and we're we're in a precarious moment where of of backslide for in a lot of things, but there's still much to celebrate in it. 
that was Stephen Rowley talking about the celebrants. Up next, we have J. Ryan Straddle, who again is another staff favorite, author of Kitchens of the Great Midwest and the Lager Queen of Minnesota. We talked to Straddle about his latest Saturday night at the Lakeside Supper Club. The protagonist in this novel, Mariel Prager, needs a break. Her husband, Ned, is having an identity crisis. Her spunky beloved restaurant, the Lakeside Supper Club, is bleeding money by the day, and her mother Florence is now stubbornly refusing to leave the church where she's been holed up for more than a week. Ned, her husband, meanwhile, is actually the heir to a chain of homestyle diners, and while he doesn't have a head for business, he knows his family's chain could provide a better future than his wife's fading restaurant. But then, they suffer a devastating tragedy, and they almost lose everything, and with their dreams dashed, can one fractured family find a way to rebuild despite their losses, and will the Lakeside Supper Club be their salvation? This is a book where we are once again getting J. Ryan Straddle's signature, honest, lovable, yet fallible Midwestern characters as they grapple with love, loss, and marriage, what we hold on to, and what we leave behind, and what our legacy will be when we are gone. I love the fallibility and reliability issues that come with the character speaking from their own point of view and close third. Uh-huh. I mean, early on, I had a writing instructor tell me that, oh, you'll believe what another character says about a character, but never what the character says about themselves. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoy exploring that subjectivity and letting the reader come to his or her own conclusions about what is real and what is exaggerated or false in a character's recollection or actions. And I try to put things in in present time as much as possible. So things aren't merely recollections because then you're also dealing with the weight of the wisdom. Mm-hmm. Like, why am I telling it from this point? Mm-hmm. Is this, re- is the received wisdom from the intervening time going to be a factor in this recollection? Mm-hmm. No, quite often I'd rather have characters experience things in real time where they may not be equipped with such wisdom where you understand how they become the person they are through how they dealt with a crisis in their childhood or teenage years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought that would be important with Florence because I'd, I'd written all of Mariel's chapters first and had that been all that existed of Florence, Florence might come across at worst as sort of a stock comic, you know, Midwestern lady of a certain age. And we have, we have more than enough of that. Right. I, I don't want, I, I grew up with these women. I don't want to reduce them to a stereotype or a caricature. I wanted Florence the opportunity to tell her own story mm-hmm. and to go back. And I want the reader to experience that story along with her and understand her better. They still may not agree with her. I've had readers already tell the book's not even out yet. And I've gotten emails from people like I hated Florence. Like I would have given this book like five stars if it weren't for Florence, mm-hmm. you know, Florence reminded me of my mom, you know, that it brought her too oh. many bad memories, oh, you know. Man. I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, Florence is is based on, um, you know, people I've known, right? But also people that I love, right? And I want to give them a fair shake, you know. It's like, yeah, sure. There's right. people out there that suffered trauma that never worked on it, never will work on it. Um, and won't communicate enough about that trauma. Mm-hmm to generate empathy in their children, you know, like their, even their own children don't know the extent of what they experienced and might appreciate it if they did, you know, like for example, like when Flor, like what little Mariel knows about her mom's childhood comes through and like, well, in my day, like we didn't have warm breakfasts every morning. Right. You know, like, like at one point Mariel says something like, 
the only thing I knew about my mom was it's many uh, like 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 the lessons from her many privations. Yeah. And so, yeah, exactly. When when something becomes didactic or dogmatic, yeah, you're not going to have empathy with that. Right. When someone like clearly is vulnerable and shares their suffering with you, you can. And I wanted to give the reader that shape with Florence. Like, I don't think Florence would ever be vulnerable with Mariel. I mean, eventually she kind of is. Sure. Like, but, you know, on her own terms. But I wanted the reader, nonetheless, to have that opportunity. Yeah. So, like I said, they still may not like Florence, but at least they'll understand her. This book is very much about motherhood. And I always thought that uh, Lager Queen was also about motherhood. And I don't necessarily want to get into kind of a Barbara Walters moment with you. But you, <laughs> uh, and this is not me speaking. This is the fairer sex who work here and speaking. They say he writes women so well. And I read, you know, of the books. I'm like, oh, man, he just, he just knows how to make a character. And by that, he really knows how to craft a, a, a female character. And I have to imagine that came from, you said you grew up with these women. When you became a novelist, you you could have written thrillers or action or sci-fi, but you really wanted to bring these people to the page. I think that's worth remarking upon. Wow, yeah, I've never heard anyone put it quite like that before. That, yeah, I really could have. You could have done anything. Thought, yeah. <laughs> But you're bringing these people to life, and it and it does feel like it is an homage to the people who are probably big influences on your life. I know that's a yes or no question. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely it is. And I write to keep my mom alive. I write to communicate with her, and she's in these characters. Yeah. You know, I have to – like, I want to honor and continue her legacy. And, you know, to the extent I can, try to be the writer that she couldn't be. Um. So – yeah, I also not seeing women like the women I grew up with represented in fiction often enough. That that alone was a motivation, but writing to communicate with my mom is what I think really drives me. And early on in my writing career, I wrote mostly comedic stuff. I wrote stuff to amuse myself and my friends. And eventually I had a writing instructor named Lou Matthews at UCLA Extension when I started taking writing classes as an adult in my late 20s and early 30s, who told me, once you start writing about things you care about, your work's going to get a lot better. And I knew I know what I care about. I know what I'm avoiding. And that's processing the grief over my mom's death. You know, she died and she died 18 years ago. She never lived to see my first published story. And um Whenever some piece of publicity comes out, like I was in People magazine last week, my mom would have loved that. Yeah. My mom was totally normcore, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, like she loved chain Mexican restaurants and, you know, dirty martinis and, you know. Yeah. And uh, People magazine and reality television. And like that would have been just to the moon, like that would have been better than me being in The New Yorker, right. you know, or something like that. That that wouldn't have rated for her like people. Yeah. You're like, yeah. And I think, oh, man, I miss her so much. And when I'm writing her, I miss her. You know, I get to be with that. I get to work on it. Yeah. I get to inhabit this space where she's like these books, like my box of books that are right behind me uh, arrived on the 18th anniversary of her death. And I remember thinking and I actually posted this. Like she's dead, but in these books, she's alive. Mm -hmm. Like here she is like, and that's why I do this. You know, that's why I write about these women. You know, I write to, you know, write to keep my mom alive and also, you know, honor, honor her and her friends and 
my other relatives, my Aunt Connie, my Grandma Doris, my Grandma Esther, my great aunt Sissy, like they didn't get to write books, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I do my best to honor them and write, write about them. And that was Jay Ryan Straddle talking about the Lakeside Supper Club, his latest. Now for our last chat, we have Grady Hendrix who spoke with us on our podcast about his latest, How to Sell a Haunted House. Grady Hendrix has been quite a unique horror novelist, I would say. He has always spliced in a bit of meta-commentary and humor and surrealism. His books include Horror Store, which is kind of like an Ikea set horror novel, My Best Friend's Exorcism, and The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. His latest maybe tells you exactly what it's all about with the title, How to Sell a Haunted House, but it really is a novel about families and especially about siblings. Here's our chat with Grady Hendrix. But, you know, you and you think you know who they are and they're not. You know, I have three older sisters and they all grew up. I'm I'm the youngest and I'm a boy in a family of girls. And so they're always like, oh, you had it so easy. You're so spoiled. And I'm like, no, man, I, I know pain, too. Um, but I wanted to do that with Mark where the reader would feel like I got this guy pegged. I know who this is, this obnoxious dude. And just to have that moment that I think we all have with our siblings at some point where we think, I don't know you. I thought I did, but this is a part of you I do not know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 there's been a couple of moments in my life where a sibling or a parent or even a close friend, I've seen them in a different context, and I've been like, I didn't know that. I didn't. I don't know this person the way. Maybe what I think I know about this person or my assumptions about mm-hmm. this person. Mm-hmm. Um, and Louise, I felt I I love those guys. Those big loud people who take up space. Uh, they're fun to write. Uh, but Louise was harder for me because she's a very locked down oldest sibling, you know, who does the right things, who leads the right life. And I didn't want her to be boring. Mm-hmm. And that was hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard to have someone who follows the rules and does the right things and is is the responsible party who doesn't seem like a stiff mm-hmm. or like a repressed jerk Mm -hmm. and so i that was almost harder to get in a way well in a way i'm not spoiling this because it's already appeared in recent reviews i've seen is other people have already spoiled that uh well there are squirrels uh there are yes there are there are squirrels taxidermied squirrels that come to life and then eventually the uh antagonist of this book is a creepy doll uh or a puppet um and so one thing to do is to put louise this put upon character and have her basically face uh um, sanity questioning surrealism so there is that but uh before i i'll let you i was just gonna say really quickly is is yeah exactly well that was my key into louise to be like well she's locked down because she needs to be because she's had that experience that's shows what happens when you aren't Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then uh before i let you go let's talk about just the crux of this how did you land on dolls and puppets i do think that you know folk art has a kind of spookiness in general but how did you uh how did you get to the the central monster i guess of this character because i am a depraved pervert (laughs) with no remorse and and i clearly grew up in a cellar eating roaches um (laughs) 
I knew yeah, it. Puppets and puppets and dolls are are a, a sad thing to inflict on a reader. But also, you know, besides taxidermy, they are the inanimate object that can make eye contact. And there is something they're alive, but they're not alive. And we treat them like they're alive, but sometimes we just throw them on the couch. They are complicated, and they occupy a weird space in our heads. And I would, and and I think we all have weird relationships with inanimate objects mm-hmm. that we don't think about enough. Like, I'm sure you've had a laptop where you're like, oh no 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 no, you're like begging it not to crash, right? You know, or like go faster, right. or your car, you're like, oh come on, you oh my god, you do not do this to me right uh-huh. now, um, you know, and and so we interact with all these inanimate objects as if they're alive, and I I thought. Not enough people were exploiting that, so I mm-hmm. stuck my finger right in that soft spot and twisted. I love how psychological your books can get because when we when we uh, play with these dolls, if I had it on my hand, am I not projecting a part of my psyche to give it voice? Is that's not I... what it feels like, though? Yeah, what it feels like is you've got another creature right there on the end of your arm. Wild, wild. We'll leave it there, uh, as. Folks, you can enter this haunted house that they're trying to sell and what happens when they encounter a creepy doll. Uh, Grady Hendricks, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Dude, thank you so much for having me and for being so aesthetically 100%. You got it, man. Take care. (laughs) Bye. And that'll do it for our look back on all of our conversations that we had with best-selling authors here on our podcast. This is, of course, a little too quiet. It's brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. Remember to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about this little podcast that we produce right here inside the Ferndale Library. Wish you a happy new year and happy reading. Happy reading.